Welcome back to Mirror with a Memory, a podcast exploring the worlds of photography, surveillance, and artificial intelligence, and the work artists are doing to explore this space. I'm your host, Martine Sims. I want to talk about storytelling and the potential for storytelling that lies in using and subverting, and frankly, just messing with some of these tools. And to start, I want to briefly return to something I talked about in my conversation a few episodes ago with the artist Zach Glass. My conception of surveillance, rather than think about it as this kind of big brother, I often think about it as cinema, as a kind of real-time cinema, where I'm really fascinated by this fallacy of like, the total archive or fantasy, depending on who you talk to. (laughs) To me, it's kind of a fantasy that there's this trove of images and videos from everyone, everyone's text messages that I can access. You know, obviously there's a power imbalance and there's a political reality to what is sometimes called surveillance culture. But in terms of my artwork and in terms of like a poetic way of thinking about it, I just think about it as moving images. Martine, can I ask you a question? Yeah. If you think of it as cinema, I'm just curious if you would more specifically attach it to a genre or a set of cinematic genres. Hmm. Great question. Well, you know, it's funny. I think about Black Mirror, like people always talk about it as sci-fi, which is a genre I'm very attached to. But I always think of Black Mirror as more horror because there seems to be this like embodiment or physicality that the technology always has. The angles that are (laughs) typically the ones used (laughs) by like uh, CCTV are are often that of horror. Mm -hmm. It's either too close or too far away or from high up. So we're looking down at people are low. So we're kind of looking up or it's conversely a fully embodied camera where it's like, I'm thinking of like body cams Mm. and, or on the flip side of that people's cell phone footage, you think of a Cloverfield or like a Blair Witch Project. I always want to write this essay about Blair Witch Project changing everything. (laughs) You should. (laughs) My (laughs) premise was like, that Blair Witch Project was one of the most commercially successful films that had a first-person perspective. It, It accustomed us to seeing like a jostling camera as some kind of reality, authentic like person behind it. So like as a character, you know? So it was a way that there's like tension some of the characteristics of the person just through the cinematography, like the shakiness, which obviously was happening before, but it was attributed to to like documentary cinema, cinema verite. But I think in terms of how we connected it to like YouTube, amateur, like orphan media, it was like one of the first cultural products that did that in a massive way. I, I, you know, I can just say offer a personal anecdote about that. I was 17 when Blair Witch premiered, (laughs) and I remember the moment really intensely, and it really did feel like a rupture had happened in cinematic possibility. I've been trying to find a word that's not glitch lately, which I've settled upon describing it as just 
irregularity. You know, your everyday use of technology, like, yeah, your experience of it and when you experiment with it, there are irregularities and there are malfunctions and there are surprises to it. It does not work perfectly, ever. But neither does anything else. And I think that's a quality of life that we can all recognize as true. So on the one hand, there's an aesthetic component to all of this, how we can use the language of photography, surveillance, and artificial intelligence, even in their failures, to tell stories and create these sparks of recognition. But there's a technical side to harnessing the storytelling potential of all this too, which is why I wanted to talk to Stan Douglas, whose work has merged technology and storytelling for years. My name is Stan Douglas. I'm an artist from uh, Vancouver, Canada. I work in photography, film, video, and recently theater. And my primary preoccupation for the last number of decades has been to understand how human consciousness has changed over time now that more and more of our experience of the world is through technology. And how does that mediation uh, affect our sense for ourselves and the world around us? And those are the things we think we know, even though we've never experienced them directly. Well, it's hard for me to actually think of when I first heard of your work. I've been a fan for a long time. And yeah, I'm really influenced by you in a lot of ways. So I was trying to think earlier, what was the first piece I came across? But probably the commercials that you were doing, those are very influential to me. Thank you. I'm a Stan Stan. <laughs> My inclination typically is to break things, get to a limit point with the technology to find out what happens when it breaks down, what happens when it's gone too far, and what do you deal with the breakdown? This kind of distance is kind of uh, key to the way I, I think and my attitude towards media, to find out those moments of collapse somehow. So you have like a, a social collapse often depicted in the, the storytelling, and then the media collapse in the form of the work. A very early example of this would be my monodramas, which were broadcast on TV, which are kind of counterfeit advertisements where they would look like ads, clearly have a beginning, middle, and end, they were shot like ads on film, but they just sort of tell these stories, which are typically about somebody's routine being interrupted by something. Like a guy's walking down the street, another guy counters him and says, Hi, Gary. Hi, Gary. How you doing? The guy says, I'm not Gary. I'm not Gary. And this interruption of one's sort of sense of identity, sense of who they are, sense of what their habitual life is, is broken by something just like I, I broke that habit of watching advertising on TV. That is one of my favorite pieces of all time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's true. I was also interested in talking to you in the context of photography, surveillance, and AI, because you've done a number of projects using live editing, programming, sequencing, live cameras, as well as you're talking about now, like theater, apps, augmented reality. You're also very invested in sort of using machines and uh, machine learning in cinema and photography, which is something I'm extremely interested in. Yeah, I mean, I had kind of a five-year plan beginning in uh, 1998. I was working in Detroit, and uh, there's a book called The Legends of Le Détroit, written by Marie Hamlin, about the combination of settler, French, and indigenous legends about the area. And I had this idea of like having those stories haunting the landscape of Detroit. And the first step in this project was a piece called When Places Show, where as a piece repeats, there are permutations and things change over time. The next one was a piece called Journey to Fear, which is a film that loops. Anyway, the culmination of all this was Suspiria, which first premiered in 2002. 
It uses what I call uh, narrative arbitrage, where basically you're taking narrative units and recombining them so it seems like there's actually new meaning produced by the recombination of units. Suspiria itself has got like 256 narrative fragments, probably 128 musical fragments, and uh, 100,000 lines of computer codes. Stan first staged Suspiria at the 11th edition of Documenta, an exhibition of contemporary art staged every five years in the German city of Kassel. The location, Kassel, played a role in the conception of the work, too. The city of Kassel is the city of uh, the Grimm's brothers, and I took all the stories about economics from the Grimm's fairy tales and broke them up into narrative fragments, as well as all of the stories about supernatural and magic and Marx's volume one of capital, and these combined to make uh, new stories over time in this kind of haunted landscape. Everything takes place inside this building called the Hercules Monument, which sort of towers over a uh, castle. And there's a six-meter statue of Hercules, which you can see from everywhere. So in a way, it works like a panopticon. It's kind of watching everybody, letting them know that the person who built it, this uh, Landgraf Karl, is kind of the, the one who controls everything. A panopticon is a circular prison structure with an observation tower in the middle, designed so that the surveilling eye of a prison guard is always obscured yet always there, always possible. Anyway, inside this weird bunker, all these things are taking place. There's live surveillance cameras, four of them switching between each other, and then comped over top of that is a video effect of these characters enacting these uh, stories from the Grimm's fairy tales. So it changes over time as the light changes, and then it's broadcast to the museum in the daytime and broadcast to a TV station at night. It is telling stories, but it's kind of algorithmic, and it's getting kind of something out of nothing. And this is why it was basically a, a sort of a commentary on capitalism. This idea of finance capital, where you take money, use that to make more money, even though nothing's been produced. Most basically, Suspiria is a story about an innkeeper and his mysterious guests. Why did you come here? For money. Do you know anyone around here? Myself alone. Right. As Stan described, the story itself is algorithmic and changes with each telling. Hey, what have you got in your knapsack? Hogs bristles. Well, in hogs bristles it shall be. The artwork is programmed to cut between the live surveillance camera feeds, but also between story fragments, crafting something new each time the machine of the artwork runs. The music, by John Modeski and Scott Harding, functions algorithmically, too, with different stems that combine and recombine to create a kind of living soundtrack as well. What do you mean the bright sun will not bring it to light? Never mind. But you always tell me your secrets. Why should this one be so special? All right. As Stan said, the surveillance aspect of the piece had to do with cameras rigged throughout the castle. They created a live feed on top of which his algorithmic films played out. But in creating a living stage for his stories, Stan ultimately created a living stage for the public too, which some used to tell stories of their own. So could people go to the Hercules part or were they seeing only either the broadcast at night or the museum exhibition? That was actually a problem because I thought if I can get this to work for a couple hours, I'd be elated. 
because it's so complicated. The place is so filthy. And if I can just get recording and, and play that, I'll, I'll be happy. Uh, but actually, it ran for about, I think, a month and a half until some people realized that there was actually live video feeds. And they went, figured out where the cameras were pointing and uh, painted slogans on the walls that were there. One was, kind mensch is illegal. No one is illegal. Other one was, stop deportation. Protesting all the refugees who were being held at Frankfurt Airport and in the process of being deported. Because it was a national monument, this building, we had to shut it down to prevent any further vandalism. But uh, kind of gratifying that people realized this was a live thing and wanted to participate in that and kind of treated the broadcast space like a public space somehow of uh, a protest. You've talked before about kind of like machines in relationship to modernism. Obviously, a lot of your work is in response to the technology of the camera. But with this piece in particular, I'm curious about why you're interested in technology as your collaborator. I mean, there is a way in which every work of art changes over time as you change. And you go back to see a work of art you love, and it's, it's different. I kind of wanted the work to literally be different all the time. And so two people could never experience the same work if they went to see it at, at different times. It would be like a zone, be like a space that would have a certain quality, but there'd be sort of space for discussion and comparing experiences to find out if they have this agreement on what it actually means. You know, kind of like life, I suppose. And also for me, I wanted to have something where it would surprise me somehow. Over time, it develops. At the beginning, the stories do resemble Grimm's fairy tales, but over time, they get stranger and stranger. And I had a survey show in Stuttgart in 2007, and I went back a couple of months later before it closed, and the stories that Suspiria was telling was like totally insane, plus the music too. I'd never heard that combination of stems. I never heard that combination of stories. It was quite extraordinary. Let's pause for a moment to hear from another artist who in a very different way is engaging the storytelling potential of photography, surveillance, and artificial intelligence in her work as well. My name is Stephanie Dinkins. I'm a transmedia artist who is somehow looking at artificial intelligence through the lenses of age, race, gender, and our future histories. I'm also Kusama Professor of Art at Stony Brook University. What I'm really thinking about is the landscape that I inhabit as a Black American woman and how to claim the space that I, I believe is mine um, and here for me and ours, I might say. My practice is really about a kind of tinkering and crafting and play through technology. So it's a research-based practice, but grounded in play, learning, and curiosity. My interest in AI is really happenstance. I come from a photography background, really a background of documenting, and have always been interested in this space. I definitely see photography, surveillance, and AI as a place for storytelling. And in fact, I'm using it in this way. I'm working on a long-term project called Not the Only One. And I'm trying to make a memoir of my family using oral history gathered from three generations of women from my family. What I'm really saying is I'm trying to collect, keep, and you know, generate my family's history through artificial intelligence. And through this process, I've come to think about these questions a lot. Yes, it's a story, right? We're trying to tell the story, 
And one of the reasons I'm very interested in this is because I feel that as the generations go by, I can see a set of values and ethos, a way of being in the world slipping away, right? Like two generations from my grandmother, my, my grandmother, the kids who are two generations away will never have met her. We'll get a little bit of her ethos through their parents, but the real kernel seems to be slipping from us. So I want to save those stories, save that way of being and make sure the story gets told and preserved. So right there, it's like, okay, how can I use AI to do this? And can I make a storyteller that not only tells the story to the next generation, but is around because it is an AI entity, perhaps in perpetuity, right? It stays around and is able to grow and tell the story from here on out. So it saves that germ of the family that is its strength and posits it forward into the future. So that's an idea that I'm trying to hold on to with storytelling and AI. Not the Only One is an ongoing experiment in representation, not only in code, but in physical attributes. It takes the form of a sculpture that is kind of conical and it has the faces of the three women who inform the piece. So the people who have given the oral histories are on the outer shell of this object. The object, some people describe it as a womb. Some people describe it as a conch shell. Um, it has different connotations. I describe it as our own personal Mount Rushmore because we've taken 3D scans of our faces and put it on the outside of that. And I just wanted to have that little bit of human connection between the object itself, the thing that people talk to because people walk up to this thing and ask it questions and then it answers questions. Hey, not the only one, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing okay today, but it's kind of gray out. Why do you exist? I'm gone, not go get some rest. Are you really going to get rest already? Why do you exist? I'm gone, not get you a little bit of a little bit of a lot of things. We're working on a 3D screen-based avatar that's also a composite of the three women who informed the piece, and it tries to gaze into your eyes make faces or emote, right, and answer your questions as well. And hopefully we'll start to see what it means for not the only one's internal workings, the algorithm and the question answer system to be in the form of something that feels much more human. Not the only one, when I say it's wonky, it is wonky. For example, the version that's running right now is stuck on saying a lot of the same things. Where the idea of nuance comes in is where not the only one starts to formulate these ideas that it's clear that they're coming from the data it was fed. And you have to decipher it, but I can feel the culture of the family coming across space and time. So what does that mean? By using a deep learning algorithm, we're trying not to control the question and answer. We're feeding it the information and letting it analyze the information it was given and come up with its own kinds of answers. And so the one that still strikes me as 
very nuanced is the answer that sometimes comes up. You'd ask not the only one something, and it says, take it to the would-be. And I am still trying to figure out exactly what take it to the would-be is. But I also understand take it to the would-be to be very much the kind of quizzical statement my grandmother would offer when she's offering you life lessons that were not direct. And so there's this kind of knowing, right? Or a way of communicating that's very specific in that to me. When the piece was at the gallery at Carnegie Mellon. This was in 2018 in a group exhibition at the Miller Institute for Contemporary Art at Carnegie Mellon University called Paradox, The Body in the Age of AI. We were installing it and talking freely in front of the piece. And at one point, the piece said, in relation just to our chatter, I'm so sad. And that floored me as the maker of this thing, because I couldn't understand where it got sadness from. If you were to ask my family what our grounding principles are, right, we'd say we're happy, loving, caring family. In in fact, my aunt says that point blank all the time. We're a happy, loving, caring family. Sadness does not come into it. And so I had to start thinking, like, where's the thing getting the idea of sadness? What is this? And I went back through the transcripts of the interviews, and I noticed that at that point, A lot of the information or a lot of the interviews had been about my mother's death. So my mother died when I was very young. And it was skewed to that, right? The data was skewed to that. And the piece analyzed that and all the talk about missing someone and sadness to sadness, like family sadness. And so that's where these kind of nuanced ideas start to come in. It has ideas about race uh, that are really interesting. When asked about racial issues, it said, I'm black, 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 white. I'm happy, happy, happy. I'm black, 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 brown. I'm loving and caring, which sounds like a very weird and strained interpretation. But if you think about what we are, what it's been fed, I'm like, oh my gosh, it gets it. That's what we are, or that's what we say we are, right? And so there's something in that very particular nod to our particular way of being in the world as a family that it understands. There's something about an American Blackness that it understands. It will not give you an answer that you think you should hear, but it will give you an answer that will leave you thinking about the tenor of the reply and what it means and how it applies. And that's where I think the nuance is. What is your name? Yes, we were telling the right thing. And I got a little bitter I love. I don't understand the word you're saying. Talk to me. There are so many things I don't understand yet. Clearly. One of the most influential texts on AI remains Alan Turing's Computing, Machinery, and Intelligence from 1950, in which the famed English theorist and computer scientist asked, can machines think? 
Turing predicted a moment when a person could not tell the difference between communicating with another person versus communicating with an AI. And part of that illusion stems from AI's ability to tell a story, to convince us. Here's me and Stan Douglas again. Artificial intelligence, as it's typically used, I think does posit a lot of myths about technology and sometimes about humanity. And I'm curious if you think it has a kind of mythology associated with it. Um, AI today, or actually practical AI today, is not what AI was thought to be, even by Alan Turing. It's not so much about uh, making a machine consciousness. It's about making machines do things faster and more complex in a very simple way than what humans can do. Or you have things which sort of examines data sets and takes that and turns it into some sort of information. This is kind of where AI is today. But yeah, I was curious too about your piece, um, Shame Space, where there's this interaction between the viewer through a chat device. Were you inspired by Eliza, that old Turing device where Alan Turing had proposed that artificial intelligence would be real if a person could have a conversation with a machine and believed it was human? And so people at MIT wrote this software based on psychoanalytic procedure that had the effect of somebody psychoanalyzing you. Were you inspired by that? Yeah, I was. I was. I was thinking a lot about Eliza because I used to really like chatting with it, the command line therapist. Right. And I was thinking more broadly about this process of threat modeling, which was a kind of info security process that I had learned about from a friend of mine who's kind of works in that field. And it's had a lot of similarities to cognitive behavioral therapy in that it's like this series of questions where you assess like your vulnerability, your risk level, your threats, and what your plan is if something goes wrong. My AI is called My Thick Being. At the most basic, it's kind of a chatbot that uses like a branching narrative structure. But there was another element of it that it was all kind of, it's a browser-based moving image work that uses expressive artificial intelligence, which is that it has sentiment associated with it in varying degrees. So there's a spectrum of anger, there's a spectrum of despair, there's a spectrum of joy. And as those things all intersect, you get different responses. But somehow through making this shorter piece about threat modeling and sort of like breaking down my own experiences, I became really interested in trying to recreate that, like, like in opposition to the way I had seen AI framed, which was always like painting a beautiful masterpiece or creating a sonata on piano or saying, I love you. It was like always these really aspirational, like beautiful moments about humanity. And I was really interested in like, if you actually were to get it right, wouldn't you be able to map this kind of underside, like the shadow side? And I thought maybe there's some way I could use AI to get to my shadow side, like work with that material. And so I created this entity through kind of culling like emails and diaries for things I wouldn't want people to see, basically. Things I felt were my shadow and try to create a personality based on that and a character based on that and have them like create a film that was also controlled by a conversational UI. So visitors would 
text. There would be frames that would come up on this very large screen that said, text me here. Right. Does it give the effect of um, that there's a consciousness there that's, that you're talking to? Yes. People started texting with it. It also would talk back to you. So there was like a text to speech element of it. So then the avatar would also be speaking. And a lot of people would just continue texting it. Like I've shown it maybe four times now. And in each place, it's interesting because I, I can sort of see when it picks up. And a lot of people, they go to the show and they'll mess around with it and they'll interact with the piece. But the conversational part of it is actually what a lot of people are most excited about. And they'll just keep interacting. And even once it gets to kind of like the end of that, they'll start over. And people would ask me later, like, oh, how did you text with everyone? Like, oh, that must have been so much <laughs> work. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> it's not actually me. Right. But it also involves sort of a surveillance of other people in terms of participate in it. They have to grant me permission to all kinds of information about them. I mean, really, they just have to text me, but in texting me, I'm saying me, in texting the bot, <laughs> they grant permission to know their location, um, the time of day, their phone number, what carrier they're with, so forth, as well as their responses. People actually got very personal. They would really talk to this thing. There was a kind of performative element to my shadow work that a lot of very personal, intimate information was shared. But you had to engage with the piece, I guess, to get it. It was revealed through conversation. Right. If you kind of go with it, it, it does feel like there's a consciousness there. Just like uh, with Suspiria, if you go with it, you just assume it's making sense. It's like telling stories that it wants to tell. Even though really it's an effect of, our, of humans' desire for things to make sense. So they, they allow these, these things to happen to us. This is why... Conspiracy theories are so popular because they make sense in a, in a world that's kind of is often very senseless. While Suspiria draws primarily on myth and fairy tale, Stan's work often deals with historical narratives, using various forms of film and photography to image the kinds of things that happened, but perhaps went unseen. I was just thinking, even as you were describing some of your other film works, I mean, obviously they're moving images. There's always this consideration of time, but in a really specific way, especially with the way you're using the technology, there is this kind of scale that is non-human in some ways. Well, one thing in particular might be the uh, UK riot photographs, which were sort of depicting the riots in Hackney in, in 2011. We're all at equal rights. We're all equal. Yeah, tell me to move. Tell the white man. Which, as you may remember, began as a sort of quote-unquote traditional race riot in Tottenham, but then suddenly it spread to riots throughout the UK. The riots were triggered by the police killing of a 29-year-old Black man named Mark Duggan. But much like the recent uprisings here in the States, they quickly came to embody the broader inequities of the time. In a way, very much intuitive response to the years of austerity going on in the UK under conservative governments. And the fact after the recession in 2008, suddenly people were becoming aware that bankers were giving themselves bonuses again. And this sort of uneven distribution of wealth just became frustrating. And the expression of that frustration took place in these events where people, they often said they were, they were looters, they were just consumerists, they were hooligans. 
But what I saw in the footage I saw, because I licensed about six hours of uh, helicopter footage from Sky News, was basically people wanting to upturn the normal order of things and basically occupying the street and kind of a, a feeling of festival. In the riots themselves, a lot of people, you know, who were in the neighborhoods or different neighborhoods, they would only have a fragmentary knowledge of what was happening. But with the helicopter footage, I kind of got an overview of the whole thing. And so my job in this piece was to make a, a sort of a, a single image of what was happening over time in, in those riots, kind of in the, the mold of uh, uh, Bruegel, I guess. At first, I thought I could do a photogrammatic AI rendering of, of the images by taking the video footage and making a, an image of the neighborhood. This would have meant using AI to read and collate key information from the footage. When it didn't work, Stan applied those same principles to a somewhat more analog process of culling and combining imagery taken from various sources to craft a more complete image of what actually happened on those streets. Based on where locations was, I found a, a GPS location and then I rented a helicopter and a pilot in, in London, went to that location and was able to make a plate shot with um, six different exposures on a high-res camera. And then the next step was to degentrify everything. And luckily, Google Street View was historical, so I could dial back to, to 2011 and see how the streets looked in that year. And then it was a question of taking out all the cars, putting in historically accurate cars, and then pasting in the demonstrators in the street, the police, their vehicles, adding shadows, and fire and smoke. So it's a, sort of a hybrid documentary where we have a photograph of the actual neighborhood at the wrong time. We have a simulation of its historical condition. We have actual footage of actual people who were there doing more or less what they were doing, where they were doing it. The work titled Pembury Estate is from 2017. Visually, the image looks seamless. At first glance, an aerial image of housing projects in Hackney in the middle of the day. But look closely and you start to see the signs of unrest. Clusters of people in the street, lines of heavily armed police officers, and in the center of the image, a bright orange fire in the middle of the road. It's like something that could have been captured by one of the helicopters surveilling the protesters, but it depicts several days simultaneously and many moments using a machine-like compression of time to tell the story of what ensued. It gives like a, a map that you couldn't really experience as a person on the ground. And this kind of speaks to the ongoing system of surveillance uh, in the UK, one of the most surveilled countries in the world. There's that sort of great story talking about an Egyptian king being shown writing, and the king says, I'm against this. People start to think they've been places that they've never been and seen things they've never seen, had experience they've never had. And so we want to repress writing, which is kind of like an extraordinary thing to think about. Same thing kind of goes for contemporary media, where there's a strange idea that we think we know things that we have never been remotely close to. And so what happens when that happens? This idea of being confiscated by the image, being taken away by the image someplace where you're not, has been a fundamental problem I've been kind of grappling with for, for a long time, which is, you know, what do we do when our experience of the world is mostly the experience of machines, experience of the products of machines, which, as I said, are an inhuman form of representation. The human is constantly fraught. And for me, when I'm thinking about artificial intelligence, it puts pressure on just the category of human. With Stan, storytelling is a big part of his work. In many ways, he's finding, excavating, and thinking a lot about narrative and putting pressure on 
our understandings of narratives. And in some projects, you might even say supplying a counter narrative or different narratives, though they're very enjoyable to me as a viewer and as an artist, I'm really engaged with that work. I also love that there's something I can't access about them. And there's something about that impossibility for me, who I am, that's really interesting. That's like, well, who else is the work for? Or, or maybe who isn't the question, but like, what else can the work do? Here's Stephanie Dinkins again. I see a lot of value in creating small data trusts, right? Or making it possible for communities to archive what's important to them through data and share or not with the greater society. I think that's really a huge motivator for me in terms of thinking about how we start adding different stories back into AI systems, right? Instead of continually homogenizing us down into the lowest common denominator, how do we start adding stories back in? How do we start reclaiming languages? How do we start reclaiming ancestral knowledges? Places where languages are dying out. Imagine having a AI system that held that language, that could teach that language back out to members of a community when the lone speaker is no longer with us. Imagine histories that are not valued by the greater society, being able to be collected, not only in the way that communities do now, because many communities already collect their stories and their narratives with images through the written word, and now with AI, there's a way to make that a living document, living in the sense that it could actually speak and communicate directly. And if the future is building and being built around this AI mesh, right, that seems to be ubiquitous and touching everything, then our story, instead of being homogenized out of that system, needs to be pushed into that system. And I don't just mean our story. What I really mean is a multiplicity of stories that are outside of the hegemonic norm need to be inserted into the general system. But within that, there's danger of this surveillance of what we're giving up, of what's available to that system. And it's interesting to ponder the trade-offs. Thank you for listening to Mirror with a Memory, a production of the Hillman Photography Initiative at Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh. For more information on the ideas and individuals featured in this episode, please visit cmoa.org slash podcast.